abolition today. What we're being tasked to do, and let me sum up, in California is to consider the following. To consider executing more people than any state in modern American history. To line up human beings every single day for execution for two plus years. To line people up to be executed, premeditated, state-sponsored executions, one a week for over 14 years. That's a choice we can make, or we can make, I think, a more enlightened choice to advance justice in a different way. There was a National Academy of Science report that came out that estimates one out of every 25 people on death row is innocent. If that's the case, that means if we move forward executing 737 people in California, we will have executed roughly 30 people that are innocent. I don't know about you, I can't sign my name to that. I can't be party to that. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Let me be clear. My opposition to the death penalty is rooted in a few things. One, we get it wrong way too often. It's a technological argument, right? We swear people did it until we find out they did find out they did Right? And we've had too many cases where we were convinced somebody did it until they didn't do they didn't Right? Except they're dead. The second thing is, I don't think the state has the moral authority to kill its citizens. To kill its citizens. To kill its citizens. No nation that has executed this many Native Americans, that has allowed the Tuskegee experiment to happen, that has enslaved its, its own, that has built on the exploitation and enslavement of its own people, has the moral authority to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. Third reason is it doesn't work. Because you, you, your, your point was you should go into any situation knowing that if you do this thing, this is going to happen. The implicit argument of that is that it will dissuade people from doing it, right? That if I knew I was going to get killed for this, Maybe I won't kill somebody. But all the data, all the evidence, all the science throughout American history shows that the death penalty actually doesn't make people less likely to kill. In fact, there are states, there are states where, where there's a death penalty, murder rates are actually higher. Okay. So someone breaks into your house. Uh-huh. And they're armed. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you see that they're in your house with a gun. Do you try to kill them? Yes. Okay. I'm defending so myself. In, so, in a way, you're actually enacting the death penalty on this person. Yes. Remember, I said the state doesn't have the capacity and the moral authority to do it. I didn't say individuals didn't. And also, here's the other difference. The state isn't the state operating isn't in self-defense. I believe in protecting life. I'm, I'm shooting that person to protect life. The state is not doing it to protect life. Uh, um most humblest individual that you could ever meet. I'm not cared. I'm not with kind. I'm not with real manners. I'm not with, like I basically say all the time, to know a mod is to love a mod. And I really wish people could have really got to know a mod to really, really love a mod, because a mod was love. Honestly, I really do think that the, the parties involved should be um, given the death penalty. You know, my son was he, he was shot and killed. Um, my mom wasn't giving me a chance. He wasn't given a chance to to live. He chose to fight and he still was killed. So I think that they should give a mom that. I just want him to be. 
could be successful. I mean, he was 25, and um, Ahmad when I had a chance to do anything that he that he chose to do. And I just always tell, I mean, all my kids, you know, as long as you're above ground, you have the opportunity to do whatever you want to do. Abolition. 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 You were just listening to a Max Mix called The Crew is Cut with audio and video clips, but the audio clips came from California Governor Gavin Newsom, Vlad TV's debate, an excerpt from Mark Lamont Hill, and Wanda Cooper Jones, Ahmaud Avery's mother. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parkers. I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. Peace, Brother Yusuf. What's happening, sir? Hey, peace, Max. Uh, Peace and blessings be upon our uh, listeners. And, of course, uh, I say Eid Kareem to all of our Muslim listeners. We just completed the month of Ramadan. So, you know. Good mood for that, but of course, you know, because of today's topic and what's ongoing in the country, you know, I have to set that enjoyment to the side and, you know, really dig deep into this. So we're going to go kind of kind of deep on it tonight. Yeah. Last week we showed beyond a reasonable doubt that the Sixth Amendment has been so overwhelmingly violated as a matter of systemic habit. That for all intents and purposes, that right does not exist in reality. This week, we begin a two-part broadcast examining and discussing another guaranteed constitutional right which has no protection whatsoever, the Eighth Amendment, particularly the death penalty aspect of the cruel and unusual punishment clause. We put together some stories that need to be told and heard, not to mention the music and poetry specially selected for this episode is going to reach your heart and touch your soul. But before we willingly go into the Mariana Trench of criminal injustice, let's just briefly review what's been going on for this past week. And let's start out with uh, asking Brother Yusuf, what do you think of that Max Mix, man? You know, uh, I have to give you as many accolades as possible because that's possibly one of the best ones right there. I mean, just the the music selection to go along with it, you know, that that just adds to it. Murder was the case, you know, that, well, you know, we covered the casual killing act over the past couple of weeks. We've spoken about it. And it just seems that, as we'll learn tonight and going through the history, the country has gotten really good at killing people. So that's where I am on this, Max. Definitely. You know, when I put these things together, I really try to give a perspective to show or sometimes multiple perspectives, like this one this week, and uh, at least three perspectives that were being presented there. Uh, one, you couldn't see, uh, on, you know, on a radio program, but on the video where uh, Lamont Hill was, Mark Lamont Hill was, talking about how the state does not have the moral authority to kill people, which I believe he's right on, but he did say that the individual does. And during the video, there's a clip we show 
of two Ohio teens who were murdered and shot by a homeowner, and they were in an abandoned building that uh, they were suspected of doing drugs in. <laughs> Imagine that, you two teens, you're going to smoke a joint in an abandoned building and somebody blows you away. So that was right. the perspective that we were offering there. You know, even when you think it's okay, it may not be okay. You know, uh, so that was there. And then finally, the justice part, where Ahmad's mother, she wants justice. She deserves justice. But the state is not capable of meeting out justice equally and righteously. It's just not. The history proves it. One in 25 people, right. as the governor said, are innocent on, on death row. So how many people would you sacrifice, innocent people, to kill one person? That's a great question, Max. That's a great question. Well, there's a few things that are going on this week that I've been trying to keep track of. Uh, you want to share anything from your past week? Because I know you've been struggling, man, uh, you know, at, in school, getting this oral done, uh, preparing your written stuff and everything like that, and then participating here, man. I know your, your plate has been full. So what's your week been like? Hey, you just hit it. <laughs> you hit, hit the nail on it. And, I mean, this is my – Reprieve, you know. Right. I can I can throw all of that to the side. I mean, with the exception of you know the last ten days of Ramadan were out of this world. I mean, I can't even explain that. You know just how great that was. But with the things that are just going on in the rigmarole of everyday life, hey, I'm thankful I can put that to the side and we can sit here and chat, you know, for an hour and a half or so about something that's very important that's going on every day in our lives and how we always make the link to the 13th amendment for it, Max. The 13th amendment is something else, man. It was so cunningly devised and so devious that just by its very existence, once it applies to you, you lose all rights as a human being, as a citizen. Uh, The constitution doesn't even apply to you. Even if you get out and you're free now and you paid your dues, you are still a non-person who still has to pay taxes, even though you don't even get to vote in an election for the people who represent you. Uh, you don't get to get any of the benefits that a citizen will be applicable for once you get out. You can't get help with housing, help with income. Uh, you can't get none of that. Anything state-sponsored is just not going to happen. So, yeah, it's terrible circumstance, man. And, you know, today, or rather this weekend, is Memorial Day weekend. Um, it's a federal holiday that deserves the last Monday in May to remember the men and women who died while serving in the United States Armed Forces. My great uncle Nelson, who raised me, uh, was a veteran from World War II. And uh, days like this that I remember him in his uniform and the pictures of him. So proud to be out there doing what he thought was right and taking care of his family. Little did he know that years later, those very constitutional amendments that they fought so hard and with their lives to protect for us have now been gone. Or they're gone. They, they don't even exist. Yusuf? Well, as a former member of the uh, United States Marine Corps, you know, I definitely, you know, acknowledge the struggle of those who are currently in uniform and those who have been in uniform in the past. You know, when I went down to Virginia to see uh, my family's graveyard, you know, from those born in the 1800s and early 1900s, and I see how many of them were veterans, you know, in various armed forces and everything. 
that served in World War One, served in uh, World War Two, and the Korean War and Vietnam. You know, it, it, it's something that you know it, it grips you. And then at the same time, we know that those, you know, who were killed in action or missing in action, both in the service of the United States and under the servitude of the United States in prisons across the country, we have many veterans who have died behind walls. That's something that, you know, we, we hear people talking about veterans all the time. They never talk about or they rarely talk about the veterans that are actually sitting in prison suffering right now. And they're there as a result of, you know, maybe drug dependency or homelessness and many of the other ills from the psychological effects of serving in the military. So that's something that, you know, is very important to me as well, Max. A couple other things about today and this past week's news is COVID-19 is still ravaging black communities in prisons and jails. Uh, Oakland, California, and New Orleans are both facing an unaddressed humanitarian crisis right now. And as we've been saying uh, over the past few weeks, places like Marion Prison uh, have uh, as much as a 90% infection rate. So it's it's a terrible circumstance. You've got 100,000 people that they say uh, have died due to this COVID, but I suspect those numbers are a lot higher. Uh, I, I would think it would be almost impossible to keep track, especially when you keep hearing about all the bodies that are being stored in various locations, you know. And we had already aired about what's happening on Rikers Island over at Heart, Heart Island uh, from Rikers prisoners digging right. graves, mass graves, where there's thousands of people being buried right there. And, you know, another story about this past week, I heard that damn near the entire neighborhood conspired to hunt and capture Ahmad. Uh, they used a Facebook group to coordinate it. I heard that the father, uh, being a former cop, present racist, and his son was an open bigot, and everybody knew it. This came from Sean King. And according to his report, this was with premeditated murder where Facebook members of the neighborhood group literally wrote that they would kill somebody. And it was a statement that went unopposed in that group. And uh, just recently, Friday, William Roddy Bryan Jr. was arrested on charges of felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. He was the guy that was doing the videotaping and you hear the gun click like he had one and was ready to go to. Witnesses right. say he was playing this game of bumper car on a mod where he had already tried to block him on several locations, literally chasing him around in his car and cutting him off as he's trying to get away. This is why it took like four minutes to run him down when he was finally shot. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, when you mentioned that – oh, I'm sorry, Max. Go ahead. No, that's it. That, that happened. Yeah, when you, when you mentioned that Facebook group, you know, depending on the type of conversations that were being held, many of those members should be subjected to either conspiracy charges – you know, conspiracy to commit murder or felony murder. I mean, there are people who are sitting in prison right now for less than that with those type of charges on felony murder and uh, conspiracy to commit murder. So hopefully, you know, I, I heard the video from Sean King, you know, and I'm hoping that they follow up with everything that – uh they really need to dig deep into what was actually said 
And you know, there are people that, like I said, they're sitting in prison based on things that they say on Facebook or in conversation. So they really need to dig deep into that. And hopefully that, you know, as much justice as possible to uh, Ahmad Avery's family can be gotten, you know, that get them all, get them all. They all, you know, deserve anyone who conspired in any manner, whether it's he's on the block right now. That's enough. I mean, people do that That's in the enough. hood, you know. He's on the block right now. He's over sex and sex right now. See, all of that, that's part of a conspiracy right there when you start doing things of that nature. So, yeah, Max, you know. It's part of a modern-day lynching in the system of slavery and human trafficking that included a former slave catcher. (laughs) Wow. Terrible, man. And, you know, speaking of uh, circumstances like that, we have been uh, talking about Khalif Browder last week during the Sixth Amendment uh, we basically said that, you know, the Sixth Amendment and how it's being violated can be really expressed through Khalif Browder and what happened to him. Uh, it was a perfect example of the violations of his Sixth Amendment rights, but also of his Eighth Amendment rights. And tomorrow would have been his 27th birthday. And uh, his brother, Akeem Browder, reached out to me today to invite uh, us to attend and participate in an online celebration of his birthday tomorrow. So I'll provide that link, or it'll be provided on Abolition Today. Um, so that's, that's yeah, tomorrow's his birthday, man. we got to remember him. Uh, like I remember Lawrence Myers, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, yeah, yeah, I know that, that's what started it for you here in Lawrence Myers, you know, and yes. you, you, you gave me the history on that. And, right, uh, and I yeah, got some good man. news today, too, brother. <laughs> Somebody sent me a a link, a brother by the name of, or online by the name of Matt Grabber, uh, he, he sent me a link to a Native American slavery abolitionist that's running for president in the U.S. in 2020. His name is Mark Charles, and I have been looking at some of his materials. I was very happily surprised to find such a thing, man. You, you fit all the criteria we could possibly want. So let me look a little bit more into his policies and discussions out to him. Hopefully we can get him here on air on Abolition Today where he can talk about uh, abolition with abolitionists. Absolutely. <laughs> that would probably be a unique experience. <laughs> yeah, that's great because uh, I, always, I, I have to re- recall this gentleman's name, the gentleman who ran for office down in South Carolina with you, who ran on the abolition platform. Coma. What's, David what's, Coma. What's his name? David Coma. Coma. I have to yeah. get that name etched into my memory so yeah, I can David mention Coma. him. And now we have this gentleman. What did you say his name was again, Max? Uh, this is Mark Charles. Mark Charles. Okay. And he actually right. checks all the boxes, you know, when it comes <laughs> to somebody who, you, who we would want to have out there, you know, when you right. talk about going on an abolitionist platform, I mean, we know the importance of abolition and we know the role the 13th Amendment or the exception clause to the 13th Amendment plays in the injustice system as well as the economics of the United States. 
So that's huge. Right, it is big. And there's a couple other stories uh, that I want to get, but I'm going to go through them real quick because I want to get to this first clip. Uh, but the other story is, you know, I was inspired by our comrades at Punks for Progress. They put a video out where uh, they, there was an organized uh, protest in Ohio regarding four fatalities at the hands of the police in just a very short period of time, including a pregnant woman who was run down by a police car and both her and the baby yeah. died. And the uh, protests were mainly abolitionist protests. They were talking about the 13th Amendment and modern slavery and slave catchers. And it just, dude, you know, it's sad, but it, it gave me some hope to hear people out there really nailing it, you know, getting to the point of the problem. And then later on, uh, I watched Rising a few days ago from The Hill, and the news anchor there, Crystal Ball, described Joe Biden as the architect of mass incarceration. I'm like, I wonder where they heard that. We have been saying that for years, but we're like the architect of not mass incarceration, but slavery and genocide. So they just took it and made it a little bit more palatable, but it is the truth, the architect of mass incarceration. And speaking to Joe Biden in a live stream recently, when informed that uh, Charlemagne the God had more questions before the election was over and, and invited him to come to New York to talk to him about these things. You know, that bastard says that if you got a problem figuring out whether you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. This is what Joe Biden said, the architect of modern slavery and genocide, who birthed all of these for-profit prisons that are now global monstrosities of the largest corporations on earth, whose son was a freaking coke fiend and sat on the, uh, stood on the floor of the Senate arguing about how he had to grow up in a racial jungle and how we had to be brought to heel. He didn't care about how we became criminals. We were criminals. Right. We deserved to pay and go to prison. This guy had the nerve to decide for us who's black and who ain't based on how we feel about him. Wow. The gall, Yeah, the, 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 the nerve. I mean, that, that took some real nerve to see that. Considering some real is, nerve to oh see that. God. You know, that's like the slave catcher coming onto the plantation and beating somebody down because they're racist. <laughs> You're a racist. Bam, bam, bam. Right. Oh and, and, this and when you look at it, many of his laws are still in effect to today. To this day, still right. talking about Many of them. Many of those it. laws are still in effect. I mean, how many people are doing 50 years for stealing a slice of pizza or jumping a turnstile? You know, many small things that all come out right. of that crime, 1994 crime bill. And, you know, the with, death penalty is one of those things that they right. have to deal with uh, in this crime bill. So... Uh, at one point, you're going to give us the history of the death penalty, but let's let's really get into this first clip and, and give an example of who we're talking about, what we're talking about today, and we want the people who are directly involved in it or affected by it to really tell their story for themselves. So I have the first clip, and it comes from uh, a story on Glenn Ford, who spent 30 years on death row in Louisiana mm-hmm. for a murder he didn't commit. And due to cancer that went untreated while in prison, he, he died in 2015. Less than 16 months after his conviction and death sentence were vacated and he was released. He was 65 and 
the state of Louisiana refused to compensate him in any way. So the clip that we have is Marty Stroud, the prosecutor, apologizing to Glenn Ford. And then we also added in Glenn Ford's reply to that, which was not a part of the original clip. Here you go. Abolition. Abolition. Well, Mr. Ford, our paths crossed, as you know, many years ago. I was a young prosecutor, and you were sitting in jail, a much younger man. I was one of the individuals who was, on behalf of the state of Louisiana, that was trying the case against you in which the state of Louisiana was seeking the death penalty. You must have felt numb back then because the lawyers you had were well-intended, but they didn't have any experience. It was a an all-white jury. You must have felt awful alone in that courtroom. The case was tried and you were found guilty. It must have been a horrible feeling. And thereafter, the jury which was composed of an all-white jury, sentenced you to death. You were thereafter sentenced and sent to Angola where you spent 30 years in a cell, more like a cage, cut off from other individuals, basically in solitary confinement, until evidence was discovered that you, in fact, had not been guilty of the offense, in fact, that that had the evidence uncovered by the state been known back in 1984, you would not, there would not have even been enough evidence to try you, much less, or to arrest you, much less to try you on. I can only imagine what life was like for you on death row. I've been on death row. I've seen death row. You were at Angola. You were in approximately a five by seven jail cell. You had no contact with anyone else. You were fed through a tray pushed through the door. And it must have been a living hell for you for those 30 years day after day, week after week, month after month, doing nothing but sitting in a small cell thinking about what had happened to you, that you were here for a crime that you did not commit. I'm sorry that well I'm sorry for what I've did to you, did to your family. And I apologize to you for the cruelty of a system of which I willingly was a part. That attempted to kill you 
for a crime that you did not commit. Well, as a result of this, I carry a lot of uh, guilt and There's just a real emptiness there that uh, nobody, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish on anybody, and that's why I think people should really look at what they're doing who are involved in these cases. I, I just, not worth the risk of executing one innocent life. One. Right, but then it still cost me 31 years of my life and death, nothing I did but death because it gave me from six to eight months to live. There's nothing to say sufficient to give you those 30 years back. It happened. It happened, and I'm sorry I can't forgive you. I really am. I really am. Abolition. Abolition. Peace, and welcome back to Abolition Today. You just heard uh, Glenn Ford's reply to uh, Marty Stroud after apologizing to him first on video and then going to him in person. And when he went in person, this is what Glenn felt. You know, one in 25 times uh, the people that are sentenced to death are innocent of all crimes. And uh, it seems we always tortured them for decades before we killed them. He spent nearly 30 years in solitary confinement. And then when he got out, the state refused to compensate him in any way, in any way. So he, as he said, you know, what a good is it? Why should I forgive you? You know, I'm coming out to die. They're giving me months to live. And here I am in poverty with nothing but debt. So his family's suing right now. And uh, we, we pray that they are successful. Yusuf? <laughs> you know that entire clip? Well, yeah. I should say the clip of uh, the prosecutor. I was just angry the entire time because it see, it sounded so disingenuous. You know, because I'm imagining this guy 30 years ago when he got the conviction out popping champagne with the rest of his office, you know, toasting up the town that, yeah, we sent another one to death. And he probably touted it throughout his entire career because this is what they do in prosecutors' offices. They make careers off of people's backs. So, yeah, I just... I, I didn't I didn't hear any sincerity in it, you know, because I've heard plenty of closing arguments and it's it sounded like a closing argument basically that he was just trying too hard to convince me, you know, that he that he uh, meant no ill or anything. Now nah, I'm not buying it, Max. I'm sorry, man. I feel you on that too, man. <clears throat> like I said, one in 25. Uh, just, you know, in the clip, we started the whole program. The governor said just the state of California uh, alone had 727 people, I believe, that were on death row. 
And then we have another news clip. We found out that in order to house them since 1976, the state spent $4 billion, which uh, divided out to about $308 million per person executed. So that's what we're paying to kill somebody. $308 million a head rolled. Um, and in horrible ways sometimes. Some of the horror stories are outrageous. And out of all of those people we're constantly killing in the name of justice through a state that has practiced slavery and genocide and oppression, uh, one in 25 are innocent. Yusuf? Yeah, that those numbers are just astronomical and so unreal when you really think about the alternative with what that type of money can do. $308 million to execute someone, mm. to execute them. $308 million to execute someone. Right. Not $308 million to provide food and housing to the homeless. Not $308 million to overhaul to the uh, educational system. Not $308 million to help working uh, parents or working uh, yeah, working parents with aftercare. You know, not $308 million to fix up parks or, you know, after-school programs for children. $308 million to kill one person. That's right. But you won't pay a dime to help them. Won't pay a dime. Won't, won't give them a dime to better their lives in any way, shape, or form. Um, right. It's the same thing with the criminal injustice system with the arrests and the incarceration. And likely Crowder, in order to incarcerate him for three years, was nearly a million dollars that was generated at $350,000 a year to incarcerate him. Again, primarily in solitary confinement, which the U.N. has determined is torture. And we know too many people who have been tortured like this for decades and decades. And tonight we want them all to tell their own stories as best they can about the Eighth Amendment and what's happening with this aspect of it. And uh, I'll read the Eighth Amendment out loud so people know what it, say, know what it says. Uh, passed, it's the excessive fines, cruel, and unusual punishment. Passed by Congress September 25th, 1789. Ratified December 15th, 1791. The first ten amendments have, have formed the Bill of Rights. And this says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. And what we are hearing today is that death and the torture you apply before you kill somebody most certainly applies as cruel and unusual punishment. And it's not just us saying it. It is court cases that have shown this to be the exact case. Um, you know, a lot of us are just dead men walking when it comes to this prison system. You get accused, you get railroaded. Uh, sometimes in Louisiana, you get railroaded through a 10 and 2, where you have 10 uh, jurors that can convict you, not 12, but 10. And it was something that was used in order to continue with all white juries so they could bring in a couple of people of color and then not have their vote count at all and have 10 white people decide who lives and dies. So right now they're going through that in Louisiana as we speak, although in 2018, it was allegedly uh, abolished. It still applies to people that are in jail right now. 
sorry, Vax. You know, the the more we look into these amendments, we just see, man, I mean, we're talking over two centuries of just a farce being carried out on the people of the United States. And we talk about the Constitution all the time, and I'm convinced people are not reading the Constitution because if they're reading the Constitution, then they say, no way. No way. If they're, if they're woke, you know, if their eyes are open, their ears are open, and they're paying attention to what's going on, they say, nah, the Bill of Rights is a farce. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are farces, with the exception of the exception clause. That's working well. But when you look at the rest of it, you say, well, why is it even there? Why would you well, say excessive bail should not be required, no excessive fines imposed, no cruel and unusual punishments inflicted, but yet that's all we're seeing every single day, excessive bails, excessive fines, cruel and unusual punishments? It's not so much that the Bill of Rights or the Constitution itself, it's actually a very good document as described by Frederick Douglass tonight in our Bridging the Gap. Series. What the problem is, is we have a nation full of oath breakers who swear an oath to defend something and don't defend it. They just stand there and go, what happened? And they watch all the rights disappear. Go back and say your oath again. And it tells you right there what you're supposed to be doing at this point. But instead, we're allowing government officials uh, to take positions of power where they show no respect for the Constitution whatsoever, and particularly not for the rights of minorities when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. If these rights applied and were defended in the way they were intended to, many of our problems would be gone, all, all except that 13th Amendment exception clause. But if we're truly in a lawless land, then we need to be having a different conversation. For the time being, I'm trying to hope that we can use these tools in order to make a change before we consider something like an all-out revolution where we would have no chance in hell. Anyway, man, we're getting a little bit over, and, you know, you and I like to talk, especially me. <laughs> so <laughs> what I want to do is allow another brother who's a griot to do some talking. And uh, it's a poet, a uh, friend of mine by the name of Wayne Breeze Watson. And the yeah, poem I'm going to now is called Dead Man Walking. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about him, and it's, after we listen. Be right back. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Don't give me hell when I've been living hell. What? Mr. Breeze, will you please stand to your feet, sir? You've just been found guilty by a jury of your peers. We sentence you to death by electrocution. Is there anything that you would like to say? Yeah, it's something I'd like to say. Fuck you. Fuck you. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. Connect. 
my scope. Focus on the prosecuting high ambition and the throne of a germination of my own high hopes. Now I'm faced with this place, with no chance for rehabilitation. Or based on description, with this face of the fabrication. Even my own relations, and turn their backs, I believe in the ministry. To the care package of Bibles and Qurans, telling me I need to repent. Saying I must be, God knows I can do it. I'm as sad as a name person, why do I need to give my life to prove Tears swirls in my eyes, when I think of a of five, have to die. Then my execution brings their resurrection, then by all means, let me say bye. Speaking of the word bye, all the time that the clock reaches nine, I have less than three hours, God please show me a sign. I'm not enjoying the story, at least up the damn page. Take away the rage of living in this damn cage. I spent ten long years, spent ten long years. Who had me dead from the moon? What? You wanna give me hell when I've been living hell? Fucking love. I'm still smiling. 
Classic piece, Breeze is a brother of mine and one of the founding members of Prismatic Dreams. Yusuf? Man, that song was tough, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Breeze, man. That was tough right there, man. That feels (laughs) like that should be some theme music, you know, like Jack of Speed. Every hero got to have theme music, right? Yes, yes. Man, that song was tough. You know, Glenn Ford, what he was saying about forgiveness, that was breathing coming from. And, you know, poets had this tendency to try to put ourselves in other people's shoes. I think he did an excellent job uh, with expressing his feelings as an innocent person about to be and then eventually sent to the death penalty and be, and killed for $308 million. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, just man. unconscionable. So, you know, now that we got some poetry in our spirit and we have heard Glenn Ford, a piece of his story, uh, what we're going to do is go into a little bit more details about the Eighth Amendment. So that means I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic to you, Yusuf, and see what you pulled together for this week. And I'll add commentary after you finish. Okay, okay. So, you know, I always like digging as deep as we can go. So what I came up with was I realized that uh, Britain influenced America's use of the death penalty more than any other country. When European settlers came to the quote-unquote new world, they brought the practice of capital punishment with them. The first recorded execution in the new colonies was that of Captain George Kendall in the Jamestown colony of Virginia in 1608. Kendall was executed for being a spy for Spain. In 1612, Virginia Governor Sir Thomas Dale enacted divine, moral, and martial laws, which provided the death penalty for even minor offenses such as stealing grapes, killing chickens, and trading with Indians. Laws regarding the death penalty varied from colony to colony. The Massachusetts Bay Colony held its first execution in 1630, even though the capital laws of New England did not go into effect until years later. The New York colony instituted the Duke's Law of 1665. Under these laws, offenses such as striking one's mother or father or denying the quote-unquote true God were punishable by death. In 1789, during the debate over the Bill of Rights in the first Congress, one argument was over the extent of the death penalty. Samuel Livermore of New Hampshire proposed that It is sometimes necessary to hang a man. Villains often deserve whipping and perhaps having their ears cut off. Are we in the future to be prevented from inflicting these punishments because they are cruel? If a more lenient mode of correcting vice and determining others from the commission of it it would be invented, it would be very prudent in the legislator to adopt it. But until we have some security that this will be done, We ought not to be restrained from making necessary laws by any declaration of its kind. So in 1878, the court ruled in Wilkerson versus Utah. 
that death penalty by firing squad was permissible, but it agreed that old English practices of execution where prisoners were emboweled alive, beheaded, and quartered, publicly dissected and burned alive were unconstitutional. And this actually, I think I, there, there's, there's an article, a little clip that talks about the execution of Wallace Wilkerson, the precedent and the portent, where it tells you about the debacle that happened with that, of how bad it went. So in 1890, there's a case by the name of Henry Kemmler, K-E-M-M-L-E-R, which held that the first use of the electric chair was constitutional, but under the 14th Amendment. I'm going to read that again. They're basically saying that the 14th Amendment makes the electric chair constitutional. Punishments are cruel when they involve torture or lingering death, but the punishment of death is not cruel within the meaning of that word as used in the Constitution. This is what the court says in Kimler. In 1972, the court changed direction in the case called Furman versus Georgia. There's also, there's also like a seven-plus-minute uh, video that we'll have up on the page that breaks down this case, Furman versus Georgia. But in this case, it's very it's a complicated ruling. It was a split decision decided that the death penalty application in this one specific case was unconstitutional because Furman, they say, was an armed burglar, and he tripped while fleeing the scene, causing his gun to discharge and kill the victim. So they believed that his punishment shouldn't have been the death penalty. However, the justices in a one-page overall opinion, which wasn't attributed to one justice, they didn't even say who wrote the opinion, with five concurring opinions and four dissenting opinions. So because of the ambiguity of the Furman case, this led to 35 states to pass their own death penalty statutes. In 1976, in a series of decisions called the Gregg cases, G-R-E-G-G, the court confirmed that capital punishment was legal in the United States, but under limited circumstances. It rejected automatic sentencing to death and said death sentences can't be characterized by arbitrariness and capriciousness. The ruling led to the use by states of aggregating and mitigating circumstances in determining capital punishments. In later years, the court excluded certain classes of people from capital punishment, including mentally health, mentally handicapped and juveniles. I don't know why they say mentally handicapped, because we know several people have gone to the uh, received the death penalty because of being mentally handicapped, not because of sure that they suffered from it. It also sure eliminated it also eliminated rape, just rape itself, not talking about a rape and murder, but eliminated rape from the from uh, capital punishment, and it also eliminated felony murder as a capital crime. In 2008, the court did rule on lethal injections, which it upheld as a legal form of capital punishment in a case called Bayes versus Reese, 
That's B-A-Z-E, and Rees is R-E-E-S. Again, the justices issued several opinions, none uh, gathering a majority vote. The controlling opinion said an isolated mishap in an execution would not violate the Eighth Amendment because that does not suggest cruelty and does not indicate that the procedure used presented a substantial risk of serious harm. But the court also inferred that a state might violate the Eighth Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment if it continually used a flawed method when alternative procedures were available that were less painful. So basically they're saying, okay, you got away with that one, but we're not going to declare it uh, unconstitutional. Just don't do it anymore. Sort of like a slap on the wrist, wrist type of thing. To constitute cruel and unusual punishment, an execution method must present a substantial or objectionably intolerable risk of harm. A state's refusal to adopt proffered alternative procedures may violate the Eighth Amendment only where the alternative procedure is feasible, readily implemented, implemented, and in fact significantly reduces substantial risk of severe pain. This is what Justice John Roberts just uh, ruled in the uh, Bayes versus Reeves case. Currently, there are 32 states that have laws that allow for executions. Three more states have convicts eligible prisoners, I should say, convicts. Prisoners eligible for capital punishment under prior laws. Almost all states have lethal injection as their primary execution method. So if you give me a little more leeway, Max, I'm going to get into death penalty during pandemics. And it's going to lead to the final article that I'm going to mention. So in March, well, between January 15th to March 5th of this year, Five people were put to death, two in Texas, one in Georgia, one in Tennessee, and one in Alabama. Other executions have been postponed because of the pandemic. So that prompted me to say, hey, let me go look and see what happened in history. So during the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920, Uh, Capital punishment was not suspended. 236 people were hanged, electrocuted, or shot during those three years. Two of the executions were botched. No surprise there. One in Maryland and one in Delaware when the drop used in the hangings provided insufficient, proved insufficient to break their necks. 55 years later from 1957 to 1958, Another health crisis of epidemic proportions caused by a different strain of the flu, which resulted in, you know, many deaths. But again, executions went forward. Hanging, although hanging was on the way out, it was still used to kill six people during that time. And the gas chamber was used in 15 executions. And another 59 died in the electric chair. Three of those executions were botched. Again, no surprises there. There were no executions during the 1968 Hong Kong flu pandemic. That year was the start of the unofficial moratorium on executions that led to the the Supreme Court's 1972 uh, decision in the Furman versus Georgia. 
And finally, swine flu, another epidemic, arrived in the United States in 2009. There were 52 executions carried out in 11 states during that pandemic. All but one were done by lethal injection, two of which were botched. So there's also an article that's going to be posted entitled, Missouri Just Broke the Pandemic's Moratorium on Executions because they actually just put someone to death. A gentleman by the name of Walter Barton, he was put to death this past Tuesday in Missouri. So even under the current circumstances, you know, the the, uh, state-sponsored killings must go on. Whether they botch them, whether they, no matter what happens, they're going to, it's basically like the show must go on. That's what I have for the history, Max. What do you think of that? Um, thank you, brother. I always appreciate when you do the research so that other people can understand, uh, like, the origins of these things, where they come from and how we got to where we're at right now. So I appreciate yeah. you, man. Um, yes, I would like to you. add some other some statistics to it. You know, there is a racial aspect of this. It's been proven in the court over and over again that often uh, these death penalties are applied to black people far more than any other group. And as of 2015, for example, of the prisoners executed in Florida for interracial murders since 1976 in cases of a white defendant and a black victim, there have been 20. In cases of a black defendant and a white victim, there have been 271. In the 41 years since Florida reinstated the death penalty, a white person convicted of killing a black person had never been put to death. And that changed in 2017 when Mark James Estee, 53, convicted of gunning down two men, one black, in Jacksonville three decades ago, was executed by lethal injection. As the 93rd execution in Florida's modern history, he is still the only white man who has ever been put to death for killing a black person in Florida. Just amazing. Just amazing. And how many years had that been, Max? Um, and that has been 41 years. 41 years. The death penalty. Yes. And uh, 90, he was the 93rd execution in 2017 and the first white person to be executed for the murder of a black person in Florida. Because the rest of them, you know, yeah, the rest of them, you know, they they get the benefit of the casual killing act. The casual killing act. And that's what we've been trying to present here today is these perspectives. This is an old argument. When I first took this task on, when you said it last week, you know, we got to do the Eighth Amendment. Oh, my God, because I knew the death penalty was going to be the Mariana Trench. It's an argument that's been going on since day one. And I find it difficult to fault a woman like uh, Aubrey's mother, um, Aubrey's mother, who wants justice for her son. I find it difficult to fault her. But at the same time, I find the reasoning presented by Mark Lamar Hill that the state, considering its past, is incapable of executing someone fairly, if there is such a thing. So there's a no-man's zone that means that until we end slavery, we ain't got no business killing nobody. 
at least that's Actually, where I'm yeah, coming you're from. right. I'm in total agreement with that. I'm in total so agreement with that. Because the, the Eighth Amendment violation, the Sixth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Thirteen, Fourteen, Fifteen, all of these things apply to, to the system of slavery. Because of the slavery, these constitutional uh, rights have, are being violated systemically. When you find something as corrupt as slavery, you can expect that you, any rights you may have are being violated. And that's what we find in this system. Uh, yeah, that's not even, yeah, that's not even including, you know, all the other stuff that goes on. When you start talking about, you know, you have these experts who are paid to do, you know, blood analysis or bite mark analysis or all kinds of analyses where they get paid by the positive result. You know, so yes. when you have that, again, money determining what's justice. So until all of that is fixed, you, you can't have it. Right, right. And don't forget that the 95% plea bargains by a 95% uh, pool of white prosecutors happen to a majority. Right. The, the racism is embedded in the system simply by sheer numbers. It is clear and obvious. And to think. You have, if you have a justice system that is dominated by 95% white people, uh, speaking with 79% of them being white men, and that no racism is happening, makes you seem very naive, at the least, at the least. But we've been trying to let people tell stories or have the artists tell stories, so we're going to keep doing that, man. And the next thing I want to get into is uh, Brother Archie Williams. Archie Williams spent... 37 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And in 2019, he took the stage at America's Got Talent. He got a standing ovation. Much of his story is told in this clip from America's Got Talent, and we want to share it with you. I know when I first heard it, and when you said when he first heard it, we both were broken down by this story. But these are the yeah, people whose lives are being wasted and, and who are being killed in the senseless quest for justice through a group that doesn't know what justice is. Anyway, here we are with wrongly incarcerated singer Archie Williams delivers unforgettable song, America's Got Talent 2020. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with your name, please, sir. My name is Archie Williams. Then where are you from, Archie? I'm from Louisiana. Louisiana. Right, let's get to know you first of all, Archie, a little bit. Okay. I, uh... I was just incarcerated for 37 years for somebody else crying. Ooh. DNA freed me. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, my God. On the morning of December the 9th of 1982, a 30-year-old white woman was raped and stabbed in her home. I was arrested on January the 4th. I couldn't believe it was really happening. I knew I was innocent. I didn't commit a crime. But being a poor black kid, I didn't have the economic ability to fight the state of Louisiana. 
at the trial, none of the fingerprints at the scene matched mine. Three people testified that I was at home, but they wanted somebody to pay. I was sentenced to life in 80 years without the possibility of parole or probation. I was sent to Angola State Penitentiary. It was classified as the bloodiest prison in the United States. You had a choice to either be strong or weak, you know, because you will be tried and tested. Days turned into weeks, into months, into years, and into decades. It's like a nightmare, you know. 37 years. How did you get through? Freedom is of the mind. Yeah. I went to prison, but I never let my mind go to prison. When, you know, you're faced with dark times, what I would do is I would pray and sing. This is how I got peace. You know, and when the Anderson Project took my case, I just kept hope that they will prevail. This new technology got me back in court. They was ordered to, you know, run the fingerprints in the database. Within hours, they matched the prints to uh, a serial rapist. After 37 years, I was released on March the 21st, 2019. How does it feel right now to be out, to be vindicated? Man, it's a feeling I'm still trying to grab. I'm still trying to digest the freedom that I have right now. I watched America Got Talent in prison, and I would visualize myself being there. I always desired to be on a stage like this, and now I'm here. Thank God. I know it's my chance of a lifetime. Wow, Archie, well, I'm so sorry you had to go through what you went through, but thank God uh, the right thing happened and you're out. Thank you. So what are you going to be doing today, Archie? I'm going to sing. Okay. Take a deep breath. We're all with you, Archie. I can't lie. No more of your darkness All my pictures Seem to fade to black and white I'm going tired In constant still before
You just called him my just now. 37 years. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard Archie Williams uh, on America's Got Talent. Sun going down on me. Oh, man. Yusuf? Yeah, man. That that song is really tough. I mean, Elton John probably didn't know what he was doing when he wrote that song, man. Sort of like what... uh, Simon alluded to there it just gives the song whole new a whole new meaning. Yeah, you know that when we look years. at, you know when we look at it uh, parabolically, you know with the sun setting is is an example of death, the parable of death. And I mean, yeah, the sun didn't go down on Archie, man. I'm I'm glad he made it out of there. And I mean, just thinking, 37 years. It's just not any 37 years. We're talking 37 years in Angola. Right. Yeah, 37 years in Angola. You know, and I remember when I was watching the video clip of this, and they showed like a little small segment of him, you know, in prison gear, and, you know, had the little prison band playing. And, you know, I'm just thinking of all the times that he probably told people, you know, that, you know, he's going to be a singer or whatever, you know, and of course guys are probably clowning him, making all kinds of jokes about it and how he said how he used to watch the show in prison, you know, things of that nature. And here he is, you know, it's it's just really, yeah, man, that song cuts, it, it cuts through the heart like a knife, man. You know, if that doesn't pull on emotional strings. Yeah, anyone that doesn't pull on their emotional strings, man, and, you know, they're, they're soulless. Gotta be. I give a lot of credit to the Innocence Project, uh, working across the nation. I consider them our modern-day underground railroad, literally getting bodies, innocent bodies from the system of slavery out as many as they can. And I know, like Frederick Douglass said last week, it's like trying to eat the ocean with a teacup or teaspoon, but they are saving lives, like literally. I mean, in order to get justice, which one of these men's lives was worth it to you? Do you know? <laughs> would it have been Richie? Right. Would it have been Glenn? Uh, you know, would it have been the character in Breeze's poem? Uh, and the next one that we got coming up, uh, more poetry, um, the story of George Stinius Jr. Uh, he was the youngest person to ever be executed in the United States, only 14 years old, and was tried and executed in a matter of freaking minutes on <laughs> no evidence. And uh, a group put the, or a brother put together a, a heck of a presentation on his story. And uh, I guess in a moment or two, we'll, we're going to go ahead and play that. But uh, I just want to check first. Is there anything else we needed to cover in this part, Yusuf, before we uh, go to George Stinney's? No, we can go on. Yeah, we can go on. All right. There was one thing I did want to mention. Um, in regards to Archie Williams, I was talking to uh, my, my brother Alonzo in Angola prison today, and he said, I know Archie Williams personally, man. As a matter of fact, I want to set up an interview. He's going to set up two interviews, one with us exclusively. 
uh, to talk with Archie Williams uh, about his story and also to help bring light to the, what they're fighting there in Angola with the 10 and 2. As I said, that's a big issue in Louisiana. So many people were convicted under that 10 and 2 rule where you didn't need a full jury in order to convict somebody of murder and put them on death row. You could do it with just 10. And until 2018, that law was in existence, straight-up Jim Crow laws. And they're fighting for the freedom of the people who were convicted under those laws, at least for a retrial at the very least. All right, well, as I said, uh, we're keeping it going with people telling their own stories or the artists telling the stories for them. And in this one, we have uh, George Junius Jr. poem. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Ill Poet Society. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. On March 23, 1944, in Alkaloo, South Carolina, these two white girls was riding bikes by the tracks that separate the whites and blacks. They was looking for Maypop flowers, but within hours they came up missing. Wishing that I had never told the sheriff that I had seen them, the white girls' bodies turned up the next day in a ditch not too far from where I stay. I was even part of the search to find them, but I found myself being blamed for the murder of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. I began to panic as the white folks' rage raced at a pace too swift for me to even contemplate getting someplace safe. And before I could even count to five, I heard somebody say the nigger boy was the last one to see him alive. I wanted to run, but my feet couldn't move. So I couldn't run, and there was no point at this point because I was quickly surrounded by a white mob with guns. I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be lynched that very instant, but in that same instant, the sheriff grabbed me and took me to jail. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I'm being arrested for the killing of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. The mob followed us all the way to the jail. Meanwhile, I'm crying for my life and wanted to see my mother, because I wasn't guilty of nothing but being in the wrong place at the wrong time while being the wrong color. Small for my age, I was slightly built. But the interrogation proceedings began with a bunch of questions centered around the presumption of my guilt. You see, the good old boy reasoning wouldn't allow them to realize that at 5'1", 95 pounds, there was no way I could wrestle both girls to the ground, somehow manage to crush the skull of one while simultaneously subduing the other, and transporting both bodies away from the scene in broad daylight without being seen. But the resolve of the sheriff could not be understated because he decided he was leaving that room with a confession even if he had to fabricate it. He offered me ice cream and said that I could go home and he forget it if I just admit that I did it. Now after hours of questioning with fear, exhaustion, and the naivete of my age combining to compromise my judgment, I admitted being the perpetrator of the incident and in that very instant relinquished my innocence. The sheriff left the room and I heard him say he just confessed that he was after sex. The little nigger boy just put the noose around his own neck. Best bet we get him to Charleston and out of sight. The lynch mob won't let the nigger survive the night. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr. And I'm being charged with the killing of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. The next morning I was sitting in my cell and I heard an officer tell another that my father had lost his job. And he and my family had left town the previous night in fear of their lives. I hadn't signed anything and no one talked to me about an attorney, but the jury selection began at 10, ended around 12 for the trial itself to start at 2.30. I couldn't do no bargaining and I wasn't in a position to, and that's probably how my defense attorney ended up being the county tax commissioner. 
Now blacks were not allowed in the courtroom, so you know there were none on the jury. Quick, fast, and in a hurry with no witnesses, transcripts, written confession, or evidence. After 10 minutes, I was sentenced to death with no hesitance. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I have just been convicted of the double homicide of Betty June Vinegar and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. By the time June 16th came, I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to die and convinced myself that I was not going to give them white folks the satisfaction of seeing me cry. Of this crime, I'm innocent. I done said it from the beginning, and my contention is not diminished one bit by your bigoted justice system or a death sentence from an all-white jury that deliberated my innocence for a whole of ten minutes. I grabbed my Bible, and the guards walked me down the hall. A door at the end of the hall is all I saw. I walked in the room and handed the attendant my Bible and took a seat. But I was so small, the straps kept falling off and sliding down around my feet. The attendant looked at me and froze. I was too short to reach the face mask and electrodes. He took a second look and sat me on top of a stack of books. He stretched the electrodes to the limit to reach my head and cover my face with the mask is what he did. All of which was still too big. Then he pulled the switch. My body convulsed and twitched so much that my head came from under the bonnet, exposing my smoking nasal cavity and sizzling vomit. After four minutes, he turned off the power and my head lay tilted, with a sunken face, singed hair, and an eye missing. I'm sharing this with you so I'm not forgotten and the justice system is held accountable and in shame. Even though I may be long gone, don't give up trying to clear my name. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I was executed for the double homicide of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. And to this day, at 14, the youngest ever to be executed in the United States. Volume 2, The Aaron Ammons Project at theshow1045.com. Yusuf? You know, Max, I would really enjoy the poem if it wasn't true. If it wasn't something that really happened. You know, if it was really? just some... Yeah, if it was just some, you know, writer's pen, I'd be like, wow, that was deep, but I really enjoyed how he put his words together. But this is something that really happened to a 14-year-old child. And I mean, just how everything went. When you read up on the case, you'll realize that, you know, jury selection took, uh, the jury selection and the trial took one day. That's unheard of for a murder case. Then he was, his court-appointed attorney was a tax commissioner. (laughs) You know, that's who was assigned to the case. Uh, Then they talk about how 
he supposedly confessed. Of course, there's no recorded instrument of his of his confession. It's just you know the lead cop saying, "Oh, he confessed to me." That was and that was enough. His attorney didn't object to anything. Oh, I don't even want to call him an attorney, but there was nothing that he did. And then on top of all of that, after he was convicted and you know they moved him to the uh, Columbia Penitentiary, they wouldn't even allow his parents to see him under the threat of them being lynched. Now the threats were out if they even wanted to go see his see their child that they would be lynched. You know, it's just so many things that was going on with this and. Yeah, great poem. It it's just too sad that it's real. It happened mere miles from where I'm at right right now in Columbia, right. South Carolina. Right. And uh, in 2014, he was exonerated. Seventy years later, uh, but the damage is done. You can't undo yes. that. It's too late. The trauma you put on, and not only hit him before you killed his child in a brutal fashion. Uh, but on his parents, on his community, on the people of the nation. And these were things that happened over and over and over again. So to come, right. I mean, it's great, his 70, 70 years later, you say, well, oops, we made a mistake, and he's exonerated. But like I said, you can't undo that. Uh, you know, right, and, I, and, and I'm that. sure that, one last point, Max, I'm sure there was no uh, remuneration to his estate either. Right, right. You know, I remember earlier that uh, Sister Jeanette, who is uh, one of our team members here helping to get the word out, wanted to say a few words. So I don't know if you can hear me right now, Jeanette, but I'm about to open up your mic. I know you want to add to the conversation. There you go. You are live on Abolition Today with Yusuf and Max. Hi, Max. Hi, Yusuf. Peace. Hi, Jeanette. Um, Hey, peace. Yeah, I did want to say something because I come to this death penalty subject with a unique perspective. Before I became a slavery abolitionist, I was a capital punishment abolitionist, excuse me, and I was a member of South Carolina Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty and Amnesty International. And I've been to every protest since they reinstated the death penalty in South Carolina, um, the first execution, which was with J.C. Shaw. And it got a lot of coverage, and we, you know, marched, and I held a sign in the front, and we marched to the South Carolina Supreme Court and then to the State House and then to the Governor's Mansion. And there was a lot of media coverage. And um, slowly but surely, it, it dwindled down, execution after execution. And I was always there because I've always been opposed. And people used to ask me, well, you know, what if something happened to someone you loved? You know, how would you feel then? And I would say, I I hope I would have the strength of my convictions. Well, in 2002, my brother was murdered. And he was 24 years old, and he was shot in the back and left to die in the ditch. And they caught the guys, three guys, one shooter and two that were accessories. And um, most of my family wanted the death penalty. And to be honest, I did too for about a week. But my gut was saying, "Mm, no, no, it's not going to bring your brother back and you're still opposed. And I was. 
so, you know, my personal feelings got in it. So I can understand people like Ahmad um, Arbery's mother. And I don't even know that I wouldn't feel that way if it were my child. I understand that. But I did go mm-hmm. back to feeling like I, I'm, I'm still opposed to the death penalty. And I continued after my brother was killed to go to protest some executions. And a lot of things you mentioned tonight are definitely true. It's not a deterrent. Um, you know, most states uh, that have it actually have higher crime rates. Um, it's applied arbitrarily. It's most often given to people, not necessarily to black people, but it depends on who the victim is. And if the victim's white, that's where you're most likely to get the death penalty. So it's mm-hmm. applied very arbitrarily. We also um, have executed innocent people very likely. Walter Barton in Missouri on Tuesday, there was a lot of uh, stuff about his his innocence. And uh, Nate Woods in Alabama in early March, both of them, there was big questions about their innocence, but they executed them anyway. So, you know, we do execute innocent people. It's expensive because you have to have the appeals process because – We've already exonerated so many people off death row, and we probably executed it. So it's more costly. It's not a deterrent. It's apply arbitrarily. And it just to me, just seems unjust. I used to wear a button that said, why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? But one of the other points that most people don't think of that I did want to mention um, really tonight was my whole point of this, but – People used to say, how would you feel if someone you love died? Well, now I know. And I would say, well, how would you feel if someone you loved were being executed? And when I marched, the sign that I most often carried was I carried one in English and one in Spanish that said somewhat South Carolina is killing someone's child tonight. And two quick stories that I'd, I'd like to share is that most often when the family of the person being executed, some of our members sometimes would, you know, try to comfort them, but they would be off in some other place, not out there with us. And we started protesting at the prison. But one time, two daughters of the man being executed decided to come out there. And I will never forget it because we march up and down in front of the prison and right before the execution, um, is when we would come together in a circle and hold hands, and people would usually pray. And those girls came out there with us, and they knew that their father was being killed at that moment. So it creates more victims. One of the girls got hysterical, started vomiting, and there's just more victims. Those those people didn't do anything, and they knew that their loved one was being murdered by the state. And the last thing that was kind of poignant for me as one of my friends had a son on death row and since got um, his sentence overturned and got life. But she would be out there and thinking this could happen to her son. And I would watch the hearse come into the prison. And when the hearse came into the prison, cold, horrible feeling, because you would know that hearse is coming in there to get someone who's living and breathing and doesn't have to die, but the state's going to execute them. And my friend Margaret asked me one time, she said, will you stay out here with me until the hearse comes back out? Kind of like for him to still have somebody with him when the hearse came out. 
and I did, and it mm. devastated me. It it was just horrible. So that's really, you know, all I want to say is that not everybody who has a loved one murdered is towards death penalty, and the death penalty creates a whole lot of victims, and it's not fair, it's not just, and I'm opposed. Thank you for sharing that uh, with us, Janelle. Wow, yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay, great to you guys. I'm enjoying, uh, well, not enjoying, you know, it's horrible, but um, right. You, know, you guys We're know what I mean. We're in solidarity. We're in solidarity, yep. Uh, in that, okay. Indeed. Like you, Thank you for that. I understand you. What? Okay. I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> All right. Thank okay. You, Thanks, Jim. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah, like Janelle, I can understand, man. You know, the year began with me going to Patterson, New Jersey to bury my 22 year old nephew who had just been murdered by a 14-year-old boy in Patterson, Jersey. And his mother uh, was talking about the death penalty, and we had a long conversation about that. You know, how do you consider killing a 14-year-old boy who's probably indoctrinated, not probably is indoctrinated by the very environment that is being fostered to create these types of attitudes? You know, there's more than one victim in these situations very often, very often. All right, well, we're getting to the point where we, we, we are a little over time, but we always leave extra in case we have calls or have to cover something that uh, we didn't get a chance to. So what I'd like to do to now, Yusuf, is kind of sum up what we've done so far, what we've said so far, uh, where we're at, and uh, how we feel about it. So if you want to start, we can go with that. You may be on mute. Yes. Oh, there you go. Can I hear you uh, now? I yeah, you can hear me now. I was saying, yeah, yeah man, okay. this this show has me worn down, man. You know, because with with so much that goes on, and I just can't shake that $308 million to kill someone, that the state will spend $308 million to kill someone, that's just so hard to grasp. We look at all the injustices and everything that goes on, and that $308 million would prevent some people from reaching the point of murder. See, that person who needs drug therapy, who's in a frenzy to get money. I know of one guy where he's sitting in New Jersey State Prison right now strung out on drugs. His fix was so bad that he wanted to get money from his grandmother. Couldn't get the money, and he ended up killing her with the golf club to steal her stamp collection to go get some, sell the stamp collection to sell to buy drugs. Part of that $308 million could have gone towards drug treatment for him. His grandmother would be alive Maybe, you know, and he'd be home. And there are just countless cases like this. 
but yet they'd rather spend that money to kill a person. And then we find so many people are being exonerated behind, you know, just faulty, just so much faulty evidence, injustices throughout the system. But yeah, Max, this this show really wore me down tonight, man. It, it, it's hard, and I, I knew from the very beginning that it would be deep and hard to deal with this. And I didn't know how. I wasn't even sure I wanted to make a, an official stand on this circumstance because I knew in my heart that by dealing with slavery abolition, we would directly be dealing with the uh, Eighth Amendment's violation and the death penalty, and that by getting rid of one, we're effectively getting rid of the other because we're removing these incentives for enslavement and oppression. Uh, that's how I felt about it. But, you know, I was in my ignorance <laughs> until I started looking at the videos and listening to the stories and hearing from the mourning family members. And, and, yeah, so I understand a lot more. I hope we've shown people some perspectives here they needed to have uh, before making these rash decisions and saying something like, they deserve to die when you really don't even know the person or the circumstances. And sometimes it ain't even what you think it is that's going on. It's something else altogether. The fingers can be pointed elsewhere. Uh, and there's not just one victim, there's two or more than two when you include family members. As a father, a parent of two formerly incarcerated children, I can attest to you that the victims are scattered all over when these types of things happen. Um, we tried to cover this aspect today. Next week, we're going to cover the other aspect of the Eighth Amendment, which is the fines and the fees uh, that are being used to drive not only the violations of the Sixth Amendment, but mass incarceration in general, particularly with systems like the bail bond system. So that one's going to be a little bit easier, I think, to, to handle. But at the same time, we're going to keep tying up these bows so you can understand what it is we're dealing with here today. It's not mass incarceration. It's not criminal injustice. It's not racism in the courts. It's all of those things tied together in a system called slavery. Slavery and human trafficking legalized by the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Yusuf? You're on it, Max. You, you're definitely holding it together better than me, man. <laughs> but, well, uh, I, I want to give it. Go ahead. No, what were you going to say? You say? No, I, I want to give a couple of uh, pieces of information to the people uh, as well. Again, I want to reiterate the message from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, and they are calling on people to organize in their communities from August 21st on the anniversary of the murder of Revolutionary Prisoner George Jackson and continue until September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica Uprising. And uh, they would like you to fill out a form that they have online so they can list your actions and events on the national calendar with the demonstrations that will be going on so people can attend them. Uh, we put that on our Abolition Today page so you can go ahead and fill out that form. Uh, we just need people to, to do something about this, to raise your voices, you know what I mean, and make a difference in this world. And the other thing is, here at Abolition Today, we're trying to develop uh, our website. So we're working on that. You know, one of the things that we really like to have is some feedback from you. 
So if you have what we call blurbs, <laughs> you'd like to say a few words about abolition today or the host and how we've been doing so far, we would love to hear it, maybe read it on the air, and also feature some of your comments on our upcoming website. You can send that to abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. That's abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. Or you can just send them in a private message to me or Yusuf. Yusuf? That's awesome, Max. (laughs) I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I'm just so out of form tonight, man. I'm just so out of form. Yeah, when man. you're dealing with this level, this the Mariana Trench, like I said, talking about the death penalty. Oh my God! Uh, so, what what is your stance at this point? And, and then we're going to do our closing statements and go into our final segment. Oh, my my stance hasn't changed. It's always going to be, you know, until we have a real system of justice, then there can be no death penalty. You know, we rather. I'm going to botch up the saying, but you rather, what they say, you rather uh, a, a, a thousand men go free than killing one innocent person or something of that nature. Yeah, I'd rather see people, if if the evidence supports it, and then that's always relative. If the evidence supports it, then I'm in favor of incarceration over the death penalty because we find out, you know, death is so final. So if you find things out later that you can't fix it. So that's why I can't be with it because it's death is absolute, justice is not. So, yeah, I'm definitely not in favor of the death penalty. I guess I, I can say I'm very much in agreement with you that until we end this system of injustice, we have no chance of ever providing justice for anyone, particularly not through a state that is practicing slavery and genocide as we speak. I mean, that, that it's impossible to consider that you can get justice in that way. Nor is it up to the individual, as Lamont uh, Hill suggested to mete out their own instant death penalties. Uh, As we've seen and we talked about earlier, those often go awry and you end up killing the wrong people there too. So we need to end the slavery. We need to free like 70% of the prisoners. We need to put the remaining people who must serve time for crimes that they have committed and justice and require into humane conditions where they are treated like human beings who are still citizens of the United States despite their heinous crimes. Uh, but they don't have to be treated like animals. We don't need to be criminals in order to deal with criminals or be animals to deal with animals. That's not how it works. You don't kill somebody in order to give them punishment for killing somebody. You don't have to be them. So once we empty these prison cells of people who have no business being there, they have plenty of money plenty of space to create humane conditions for a system of justice in this country. Until then, we ain't got no business allowing a state to kill anybody. That's where I'm at. Amen. And next week we're going to go into the other aspect, as I said. So now we're coming to the final quotes for the evening, and then we're going to finish off with uh, part 10 of Ozzie Davis reads Frederick Douglass in our Bridging the Gap series. And I got a hell of an uh, exclusive on this one, too, coming in with the music. So, Yusuf, uh, I'll start – actually, you start with your quote, 
and then I'll do mine, and then we can introduce our final segment. Okay, so I have a quote from Malcolm X, a different one than I normally use. Of course, that still applies, but time is on the side of the oppressed today. It's against the oppressor. Time is on the side of the oppressed today. It's against the oppressor. You don't need anything else. And that's from Malcolm X, El Haj Malik El Shabazz. Word, Malcolm. All right, uh, mine comes from Angela Davis. And she said, had it not been for slavery, the death penalty would have likely been abolished in America. Slavery became a haven for the death penalty. Well, thank you for listening tonight to Abolition Today. Uh, hopefully we provided information, inspiration, and all the things that, you know, are necessary to touch one's heart and mind and soul and help them come to an understanding of the issues that we deal with here today in the United States. Next week we're going to get in on the fines and fees uh, in the Eighth Amendment. And until then, I guess I'll see you next week. Oh, peace, Max. Uh, so as we get into our final segment of Ozzie Davis Reads Frederick Douglass, Part 10, Bridging the Gap, in which he explains that when it comes to gaining freedom and equality, any tool in the shed will do. Despite what you heard, the Constitution is a mighty effective tool. This will be followed by a new track by Messiah Ramkissum that just came out two days ago entitled Rotten Cotton. Wow, I don't know how you pulled that off, Max, but great job. Until next week in part two of the uh, Eighth Amendment discussion, think about abolition today. Peace. Abolition. 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 When I established my paper in Rochester, I was a faithful disciple of William Lloyd Garrison and fully committed to his doctrine touching the pro-slavery character of the Constitution of the United States, also the non-voting principle, of which he was the known and distinguished advocate. With him, I held it to be the first duty of the non-slaveholding states to dissolve the union with the slaveholding states, and hence my cry, like his, was, no union with slaveholders. With these views, I came into western New York, and during my first four years of labor there, I advocated them with pen and tongue to the best of my ability. After a time, a careful reconsideration of the subject convinced me that there was no necessity for dissolving the union between the northern and southern states, that to seek this dissolution was no part of my duty as an abolitionist, that to abstain from voting was to refuse to exercise the legitimate and powerful means for abolishing slavery, and that the Constitution of the United States not only contained no guarantees in favor of slavery, but on the contrary was in its letter and spirit an anti-slavery instrument demanding the abolition of slavery as a condition of its own existence as the supreme law of the land. By a course of thought and reading, I was conducted to the conclusion that the Constitution of the United States, inaugurated to form a more perfect union 
establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, could not well have been designed at the same time to maintain and perpetuate a system of slavery, especially as not one word can be found in the Constitution to authorize such a belief. Then again, if the declared purposes of an instrument are to govern the meaning of all its parts and details, as they clearly should, the Constitution of our country is our warrant for the abolition of slavery in every state in the Union. It would require much time to set the arguments which demonstrated to my mind the unconstitutionality of slavery. But being convinced of the fact, my duty was plain upon this point in the further conduct of my paper. As I became convinced that it was necessary to use all weapons in the struggle against slavery, including political action and voting, I became increasingly interested in the political movement being organized against the slave power. In 1848, it was my privilege to attend and in some measure to participate in the famous Free Soil Convention held in Buffalo, New York. It was a vast and variegated assemblage composed of persons from all sections of the North and may be said to have formed a new departure in the history of forces organized to resist the growing and aggressive demands of slavery and the slave power. Until this Buffalo Convention, anti-slavery agencies had been mainly directed to the work of changing public sentiment by exposing through the press and on the platform the nature of the slave system. Anti-slavery thus far had only been sheet lightning. The Buffalo Convention sought to make it a thunderbolt. This Buffalo Convention of Free Soilers did not come out against the system of slavery as it existed in the South, confining itself to opposing the further extension of slavery under the slogans free soil, free labor, free states, free speech, and free men. But however low was the standard of the free soilers at Buffalo, they did lay the foundation of a grand superstructure. It was a powerful link in the chain of events by which the slave system has been abolished, the slave emancipated, and the country saved from dismemberment. In all this and more, it illustrates the experience of reform in all ages and conforms to the laws of human progress. Measures change, principles never. It's that rotten cotton music, not that bottle popping music. It's that breaking free slavery was not an option music. Not that Dr. Seuss's opportunist kindergarten music. It's that 90s clue mix, cool mix of Malcolm Pock and Lewis. This new rhyme be that rhyming noodles, minimum wage living. 21 to drink, but jail don't come with an age limit. Couldn't afford college, you could have got an A in it. Instead, you want a jail bed, wishing you got away with it. Talk your way out of situations, words you got away with it. Not when they found the pounds and scales, you got away with it. It's just the thing you got stopped for an unpaid ticket. Two years up top and not one paid visit. They won't complain, this is a snapshot of the streets. Cops leave brothers with their back shot in the streets. Red blood on black top and white sheets. More than deceased. Hennessy on concrete as we throw back shots in the streets. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. 
rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music. No Democrat or Republican. More than busting windows out. No Jasmine Sullivan. It's that machete with sharp double edges. Ready to start trouble. Up with a deathless. Up with breakfast like working the double. Studying the slave masters' ways and rituals. Can't lick your goals. Even to those who say they liberals. Plotting to overthrow. Gotta stay low. Can't speak subliminals. We ain't get no heads up when it came to steal the minerals. It's men, women, children suffer. Who they kill us made us tougher. So we up after supper. Coming after the infrastructure that kept us under, kept the culture held hostage. So like hostages held by a bounty hunter, we kept the hunger. Jail number, green jumper, or number 23 jumper. No more picking cotton, we riding bumper to bumper. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel, it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel, rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music, I can smell the smoke aroma. Black Wall Street burned down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Broken homes to Oakland, Homer. The Black Panthers, that same smoke aroma gave blacks cancer. Black Wall Street gave blacks hope. Felt like our last chance to be more than a singer and actor or black dancer. Black Panther began re-inspiring us. Then they shot a black man on camera to kill the fire in us. Firing us from your networks and record labels. Once admiring us, though we spoke truth instead of fables. So instead of cable, we hit the streets and the net with it. Equity and sweat with it and still get a check with it. Let's get it. We begging for Nathan, got our own label popping. No more picking cotton. We leaving it to rotten. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel, it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel, it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel, it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. 